It's good to be back with all of you this week. Um, I'm here whether you liked it or not. Um, and uh, if, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's great to worship with all of you. And uh, also, if, if you weren't here last week, I'm uh, substituting for uh, Father Scott as he continues his sabbatical. And um, he'll be gone for the month of October and then back. So uh, it's good to be with you. You know, this parable that we just heard um, follows on the heels of the parable that we heard last week, the parable of the unjust steward. And by all accounts, uh, if you add yet another reading from Amos that we had this week as well, it appears that we should again be talking about uh, the use of our God-given resources to help those in need. Both of those passages seem to reflect on that. And it is a lesson to be drawn from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Added to that, uh, some have understood this parable to be providing us with some information about the afterlife, uh, two compartments separated uh, by this chasm um, so that when Christ appears, uh, it's as if the doors will open up and one will go to eternal life and one goes to everlasting death. Those are legitimate interpretations uh, and uses of this parable, but I think the point that Jesus is making focuses on something else. And it helps to know that uh, the story of the rich man and the poor man, whose roles are reversed in the afterlife, probably represents some well-known folk tales and some folk, uh, folk material that Jesus was using and as he borrowed for this parable. But what's not typical, uh, what Jesus adds is the epilogue. What he adds is this business about the five brothers. And it's especially significant because, you see, Jesus was aiming this parable at the Sadducees. These were men who lived in great wealth and believed that there was no resurrection, that when they died, death was going to be the final word. And understanding all of that, I think you begin to realize that this is not so much a parable about the rich man and Lazarus, as it is a parable about the six brothers. Uh, The point Jesus wants his audience to get is that the person uh, who will not live by the word that he already knows isn't going to be convinced by some miracle. Now, see, the Sadducees, they knew Moses. They knew the prophets. Jesus was telling them that People are expected to respond to the revelation that they have now and not to postpone their response to God's word. Someone who knows the revealed will of God in the scriptures and then sees Lazarus lying in misery on his doorstep is not humane. And nothing is going to teach that person otherwise. So the key to this parable is the speech of Abraham in which he says that a person must listen to Moses and the prophets if he is to come to terms with his eternal destiny. And what determines then this rich man's destiny is not his money. What determines his destiny is his relationship to the word of God. If we're going to get Jesus' message in this parable right, then uh, we have to identify with the five brothers of the rich man. Um, And by the way, it is a good exercise whenever you hear or read one of Jesus' parables to ask yourself, with whom am I identifying in this parable? It tells us a lot about ourselves, right? 
prodigal son, um, uh, the, the father, uh, the whatever. Well, in this case, I think we need to uh, remember that we're to be identified with those five brothers. For, because just as the five brothers, uh, like them, no one is going to come from beyond the grave and warn us of what lies ahead. They're not going to tell us what we should already know that God has revealed in God's word, especially through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. God's word isn't going to come with some marching band and some, or some explosion to get your attention. In fact, God's word will probably come to us in the stillness of the night and a manger. Or it will come to us without forcing itself upon us from a man who hangs on a cross. And as the parable makes clear, there's some urgency in all of this. Jesus made this point many times throughout his ministry, right? I mean, he, he made it with the story of that rich farmer, you know, who was gathering all of his crops and putting in all his silos and he was going to have his wealth and so forth and so on until finally God says to him, fool, do you not know that this night your soul is demanded of you? And then Jesus made the same point with the story of the wise and foolish maidens warning that the return of Jesus Christ will come like a thief in the night. And he makes the point here with the rich man who finds himself in a predicament from which, well, he can't escape. The situation is a lot like uh, Amos's audience. The residents of those capital cities like Samaria, where the rich got richer and the poor got poor, and they are being told by Amos that all of this is going to come crashing down. The leaders of today will soon lead the path- a pathetic line of captives as they go into exile. The pride and pleasure that they enjoy today will disappear tomorrow. So whether it's in the days of Amos or at the time of Jesus' audience or in our own day, responding to God's word is an urgent thing to consider. And, and just because God is slow to anger, just because God demonstrates God's gracious and abundant mercy, we should not be very presumptuous about that. I mean, we should not be presumptuous because this merciful God is also a God who judges with expectations. Expectations that um, we're to live out the scriptures as we know them and use the gifts that God has given us in order to bear fruit for the kingdom. A while back, when um, when our family was in Montreal, waiting uh, visiting our our rest of our family, we we were waiting for our order to be filled at a Subway sandwich shop, and I noticed a tattoo on one of the arms of the young woman who was waiting on us, and on her arm was written "No expectations." I asked her about it, and she shared her mantra. Her mantra was "No expectations, no disappointments." Yeah. So I asked her, you know, I mean, I, 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 I suspected there was some situation in her life that, you know, had caused her sadly to adopt this philosophy. But I also thought to myself that her boss might have some expectations and if they weren't fulfilled, she might be disappointed. Right. Um, I mean, that's the point here. God has expectations about living according to his will as he has revealed it to us in Scripture. 
And we might be disappointed if we don't do something about that. In fact, God verbalizes his expectations. By the way, parenthetically, my wife and I, throughout our marriage, have had that as our mantra. Verbalize your expectations. (laughs) Right? And God's done the same thing. God's done the same thing. And some of these are stated in our scripture readings today, especially in Paul's letter to Timothy. And these verbalized expectations, they demand a decision from us. Whether we will, by God's grace, live them out now or not at all. It's interesting that the word decision comes from the Latin meaning to cut off. But, you know, that sounds too radical sometimes. I mean, we'd rather take some time to decide, you know, discuss, weigh the options, consider all the possibilities, wait until all the evidence is in. And there always be tomorrow. In many ways, you know, that sometimes is wise advice. But maybe we shouldn't say, after all, there will always be tomorrow. I mean, maybe Paul understood that kind of thinking. So he tells Timothy, Obey now until Christ appears because because it had been a generation since Jesus had ascended to the Father when uh, promising to come back when Paul actually wrote this letter to Timothy. And so he's reminding this young pastor, endure, Timothy. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. And maybe in our gospel lesson today, you know, Luke's audience was getting content and losing any sense of urgency because by the time Luke wrote his gospel, it had been almost three generations waiting for Jesus' promise to appear again. And it hadn't been fulfilled yet. And so maybe through Luke's gospel, he's saying, but it can happen any time. And now for us, it's been centuries. It's been two millennia. In fact, since Jesus promised to appear, maybe we've lost a sense of urgency. The time will come. It will come. It's at this point that I'm reminded um, of something that the Benedictine monks have taught me. Something about which you and I are reminded every Ash Wednesday in their uh, Latin, momento mori, momento mori. Be mindful of dying. Or as an ancient monk advised, um, take care of your body as if it will last for a long time, but take care of your soul as if it will be demanded of you tonight. That awareness of our mortality along with the coming appearance of Jesus Christ should help us to have some urgency about obeying the word before we end up like the rich man in this story. You see, uh, keeping... Our mortality in view can be motivating. It's like the fellow who, you know, left a tavern one night before about closing time and he's wobbling home and he decides to take a shortcut through a cemetery. Halfway through, he falls into an open grave that had been prepared for the next day. He tried to climb out, but the hole was too deep. And he tried time after time to pull himself out through those clay walls, but he couldn't make it. So finally, he just fell back into a dark corner of the grave, exhausted. And a few minutes later, another inebriated man was weaving his way through the tombstones. (laughs) And he fell into the same open grave. And he tried wildly to climb out. 
He jumped and he clawed desperately on the clay walls, but he just couldn't get out. And that first man he hadn't seen was watching the poor fellow from his darkened corner, and he finally whispered, you'll never get out of here. But he did. That was the motivation that he needed. You know, more seriously, uh, William Williman, um, uh, a Methodist bishop, he was once the uh, chaplain at Duke University. Um, I love his sermons. And in one of his sermons, he tells the story of a funeral that he and his wife attended to show support for the family of a parishioner who had been a member of a little church in Georgia that uh, he was serving. And he called it a, a kind of a off-brand Baptist church. He said it was hot, it was crowded. And Williman said they'd never seen anything like it because they wheeled in the coffin and the preacher began to preach. He shouted and he flailed his arms and he said, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to do this or that in life, but it's too late for him now. He's dead. It's all over for him. He might have wanted to straighten out his life, but he can't now. It's over. But it ain't too late for you. People drop dead every day. So why wait? Now is the day for decision. Now is the time to make your life count for something. So give your life to Jesus. Willeman says he was incensed. It was the worst thing he'd ever heard. So on his way home, he said to his wife, can you imagine a preacher doing that kind of a thing to a grieving family? I've never heard anything so manipulative, cheap, and inappropriate. I would never preach a sermon like that. His wife agreed. It was tacky. It was manipulative. It was calloused. But then she added, of course, the worst part of it is all that he said was true. (laughs) Yeah. So there's some urgency to this, to do what we already know God wants us to do. Jess Moody, I read this years ago, and it's never left me. Jess Moody, he was a Southern Baptist minister. Baptists are getting a lot of play today. (laughs) But that's okay. He once made a suggestion for reading the Bible. And his advice was this. You begin reading at the first verse of Matthew's Gospel. And read until you come to a specific command. Put down your Bible and put that teaching into practice in your community. And then having done that, come back, begin where you left off until you come to another command. Then put down your Bible and put that into practice. Keep this up until you get to the last verse in Matthew's Gospel. And when you've completed the first book of the New Testament, either you'll be hanging from a cross or you will have changed the world. Yeah. Yeah, sure, Moody was engaging in a bit of exaggeration, but the point is well taken, right? If the Word of God is to have any effect in our lives and in our world, we must practice it with a sense of urgency. Bless you. I can do this. I'm sorry, I actually do that for my students in my classes. So. But we've got, to, we've got to have a sense of urgency if we're going to practice this. Because the potential problem for the rich man's five brothers is not that they need a warning from the grave. That's not their problem. Their potential problem is that having heard Moses and the prophets, hearing might become an end in itself when they find another Lazarus on their doorstep. You see, hearing's got to become action. 
And there's no point, for instance, in going to a doctor for a diagnosis and a prescription unless you intend to do what the doctor tells you to do. There are many who hear and know the prophets like Amos and the teachings of Jesus Christ, but who never intend to put any of that into practice. You know, current statistics tell us that the average American home has somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five Bibles. You and I are the five brothers. We don't need Abraham to tell us anymore. We've got Bibles. We know what to do. The Word has to be changing us into the image of the Word who came in the flesh. Nobody's going to come back from the grave to warn us or to tell us to get with it. We have the Word. We even have heard it this morning. And all that is left is that after the dismissal is to live it out when Lazarus is on our doorstep. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.